The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, we are coming up on June 12th. And as you will all recall when I remind you what June 12th was, um, June 12th, 1994 was the day that um, O.J. Simpson uh, created a tragedy, a tragedy for the people he murdered and their families. And believe it or not, I mean, as soon as I said that, I'm sure you were all thinking where you were when you first heard the news or where you, of, of the murders or where you were when you first heard the news of the trial, the, the verdict of the trial, the criminal trial, and then the civil trial. It's, um, I can remember being uh, in my car, driving in Brentwood, actually, um, when I heard the news on the radio uh, about the murders. And um, it, it was just a chilling time. And, and it's hard to believe, but 20 years are coming up this June 12th, just in a couple of weeks. And so my guest today is Kim Goldman. She uh, has written a book to mark this 20-year anniversary, it's called Can't Forgive, My 20-Year Battle with O.J. Simpson. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Now, as I was telling you before we started the show, um, I started to read the book yesterday. And um, I, early enough, I figured I would, I would, well, actually not early enough, but I figured whatever I didn't read yesterday, I would <laughs> get up really early. I would finish this morning. And I could not, literally, I could not put the book down. Um, it was so, and I want all my listeners to know this because, you know, at first sight, um, people might think that, oh, well, I know all about the OJ case and I've seen Kim a million times on television. What more could I possibly need to know <laughs> about this? But in fact, the book is not about, and I, I noticed that you really did that so carefully, you know, that you only put in, um, just tidbits, I mean, things that needed to be put in uh, that uh, about um, the actual crime and about the, the trials and so on, things to sort of orient people within your story. But really, it's a story about you, and it's a story about who you really are. Yes, we've seen you on television a million times, but, um, and, and sometimes you were crying, but most of the time you were looking very stoic. And this book, in this book, you really share, you make yourself so vulnerable and share your pain. And it's, it's not so much about things that people will have read in the headlines or in the stories even. It's, it's um, a very personal story about these past 20 years. 
and um, such a, st- a story that I think every you know we have all lost someone dear to us. And um, it is such a story that everyone can relate to as far as processing the grief. But my first question to you is, you know, you talk about a little bit about how vulnerable you felt during those years. Of course, you know, right when the, um, when the horrible murders happened and then, you know, followed by news cameras um, and then the trials that lasted nine months and, you know, every day in the courtroom on television and, and then the civil trial. I mean, you know, um, you got more than your 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and you talk about how vulnerable you felt during that time. So as I was reading this, where you talk about so many things that are so um, intimate, I wondered how, what made you write it and how you had the courage to share all these additional personal things that people didn't see in all this other time. Well, um, you know, I, first of all, thank you. I, I, I appreciate um, your comments. It, it, it was incredibly um, nerve-wracking for me to, to put, you know, fingertip to typewriter um, and put this put this book together, but I felt like it was time for me to talk. It was time for me to share my story. I really feel like I've overcome so many different, you know, traumas in, in my life, and I feel strong and healthy. Um, so, one, the timing is just because I felt comfortable in my own skin, uh, which has taken me a long time, and I'm still a work in progress. But today, I'm feeling good. Um you know, and part of being vulnerable, I think, is, is just it's part of my nature to be a talker. Um, I come from a counseling background. I was raised in and out of therapy. Um, so I'm not afraid of sharing feelings. But I think one of the things that has troubled me so many for so long is that people kind of categorize me for, you know, for the last 20 years as always being pissed off or always crying. And I wanted to talk about what, A, that feels like to be categorized, but then also that it's okay to be pissed off. It's okay to be crying and it's okay to have joy and it's okay to have humor and humility and love and fear and all of those emotions wrapped up. And it's for me how I've processed that, how I've managed it. And writing was the best way for me to try to share that with people who have been so wonderful to me. Um, I just, I don't know. I just felt like it was time to kind of give a little bit more than what people thought they already knew. Well, um, did you have any, did you, before you, before you actually put it out there, did you, um, like, did you talk to your father about it? Did you talk to, I mean, to your therapist about it? Like, did you, did you, did you just do it on your own or did you get, ask people for what they thought? Um, I, I started just to write by myself. I'm, I love to write. I'm a big journaler. I, I work with teens right now in my, in my professional life and, a lot of the exercises we do, you know, uh, you know, circles around writing because I think it's really cathartic. And I think, at least for me, when I get things out of my head, it's much more manageable when I see it on paper. It doesn't feel as big in my head. So that's something that I've done for most of my life. And so when I started writing, it just felt really good. Um, there were lots of things that I chose not to put in just because I, I do want some privacy and elements of my life. Um, but the, the topics that I chose to talk about, I think, were important in pivotal moments in my life where I, I could have otherwise been knocked off my perch, um, but I figured out ways to cope and to manage. And so there were a handful of, you know, things with my mother and my accident and, you know, my, my brother's death and my divorce. Like, there were some big things that 
I thought people could relate to, um, and I thought were sort of in my timeline of 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 my journey. You know what I'm saying? So. Mm-hmm. I, I was careful with the things I chose, but only because I thought there was an important message. It wasn't mm. meant to be self-indulgent. Mm, mm, hmm Well, all right. Let's, um, well, I guess, why don't we start by talking about, I mean, you talk about um, things that are related to, and you don't call him O.J. Refuse, you call him the killer. It was like uh, Valdemort, the he who <laughs> shall not <Right>. be named. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll call him the killer, too. Um, uh, we Let's just, Talk about some of the things related to him first, and then we can talk about some of the things um, that were that you, that you write about in your personal life. I mean, you know, aside from the killer, um, one of the things I thought was really fascinating was the part where you talk about wanting to go visit oh, uh, the killer and yeah. your car and your telephone conversations with Yale Galanter. So, tell us a little bit about that, and then uh, I can ask you some what I was wondering. Okay, so um, I, you know, for, for a very long time, um, you know, the, the killer had commanded, and still does, but he, for a very long time, commanded a tremendous amount of, of attention and focus and, you know, what I say, like real estate in my brain and in my heart. And I, I needed to figure out a way to make him a little bit more manageable in size so that it didn't suffocate me because there were times where I just, I couldn't escape it. I couldn't escape all of the things that were happening that surrounded him. And when he was imprisoned, um, I found myself being able to breathe a little bit easier because he wasn't out, you know, in the community raising havoc and then therefore, you know, appearing on the nightly news or on the newsstands and therefore infiltrating my life Mm. again. So when he was behind bars, I, I, it felt a little bit easier, but then I started thinking that he was like this, you know, like the mayor of, of, of prison town, you know, in my head, I thought that, you know, this narcissistic personality was like, you know, commanding all this attention and getting the star treatment. And, and I thought, you know, I got to see it. I need to see it for myself. I need to see him behind, you know, the glass wall and him in shackles and, and me being the one to be able to get up and walk away and have the back of my head be the last thing that he sees because my brother was left to die and for about a minute um, that's what the evidence shows that he was watching his killer walk away he was found with his eyes open and mm. I feel really sad about that and I, I feel like you know I, I wanted I wanted to be the one to finally get to walk away and mm. to shrink him in size and diminish diminish the importance that he was playing in my heart and in my brain and that was the best way I knew how to do it okay so you talk about how you <laughs> You set about to do it um, with this pink stationery. <laughs> I love yeah. that. And and so, but so you did actually send that letter to him. I did. Mm-hmm. I wrote two letters, um, and I I wrote. You know, that was probably the hardest thing for me was to soften um, and to know that I was needing to to appeal to his sensitive side, assuming he had one, um, because I was asking him to give me something. I was asking him to allow me you know, to come visit him. And so I, I was soft, I was vulnerable, um, and that was really, really, really difficult. Um, and I wrote, too, that in those moments I was having really, like, a hard time, but then when I finally got to address the stationery and I got to put his inmate number, you know, on the front of the envelope, it felt very empowering. Um, so it made it much easier to, to put the envelope in the mailbox. But 
I did. I softened. I asked if I could come see him. Um, I didn't get any response, but I did, as you mentioned, subsequently talk to his attorney, Yale Gohanter. Yes, I was going to ask you that. Did he did he respond? So, okay, he didn't, but his no. attorney did. And I guess that that was when, so people called uh, his attorney on your behalf because you hadn't gotten a response. Was that it? Yeah, yeah. Somehow, I honestly, I don't remember if I called, how, how we ended up on the phone together. Um, I, 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 we ended up talking and I told him that I'd written a letter that I wanted to see him. He, um, he was not in favor of it. He, you know, really desperately tried to talk me out of it and sharing with me that that wouldn't be safe. It wouldn't be a good move for me. He can't protect me in there. And I'm like feeding it along because, you know, I knew what I was trying to do, but I didn't want anybody else to know because I needed to get into the wall. I needed to get in there. Um, and so I was listening to Yale Glanter try to talk me out of it. And um, we had a couple of conversations. Ultimately, uh, he asked me to sign a confidentiality agreement, and I, I rejected that. Yes. Well, um, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that. I thought that, that the... Uh, the conversation that you that you uh, recorded essentially, I, I want to know how you got it so so just so exactly. But the conversation that you talk about in your book was really fascinating, and we'll come back to that. We need to take a break right now. My guest is Kim Goldman. Her new book is called "Can't Forgive: My Twenty Year Battle with O.J. Simpson." You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. So stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest is Kim Goldman. She is marking the 20-year anniversary of the um, horrendous, life-changing uh, for for her, her brother, and her whole family, day June four, June twelfth, nineteen ninety four, the day that the killer O.J. Simpson uh, murdered her brother, and of course his ex wife um, uh, <laughs> Denise Brown Nicole Brown Nicole Brown Simpson. Yes, right. I always get. Um, so the, I just want to make sure I re- repeat the name of the book, which is "Can't Forgive My Twenty Year Battle with O.J. Simpson." 
Before the break, we were talking about how you wanted to um, visit OJ and, and for the reasons that you were just describing. And, and yes, that, that really makes total sense as far as wanting to, you know, wanting you to be the one to walk away to sort of, um, to make up for or to, you know, um, somehow well, feel better yeah. about. But part of it also was that for two, two trials prior, he walked out the same doors that mm. we did, you mm. know, for the criminal case, for the civil case. And so that was always very unnerving for me that, you know, we, we sat through trials together and then he walked out the same door I did. And for, you know, for the third time, he didn't get that benefit. So, you know, that, that was also pretty powerful. Yes. So um, we started to talk about how, um, although you didn't get a response from OJ, I was going to say to you during the break, at least you didn't um, see your letter wind up in a tabloid somewhere, um, which, you know, a, a, a prison guard could well have thought to do, even though they're not supposed to do that. They, in prisons, um, there are guards or there are people employed by the prison who do read the letters that prisoners right. get and that prisoners send um, just for for anyone out there who's you know who um, is contemplating writing to a prisoner or has someone um, a loved one or a friend or whatever in prison, you need to know that um, it is not confidential. They they right. see what is in those letters. Um, so so yours could have ended up somewhere in the news, but fortunately that at least that didn't, and you had the the power of being able to write about it yourself. So I want to know though, how did you? How were you? Did you record the conversations with his attorney, Yale Galanter? No, I did not. Um, I just part of it was I was so dumbstruck by by some of the things that he was telling me. I just I wrote notes. I mean, I had a scribbled piece of paper mm-hmm. and just writing notes um, so that I wouldn't forget. Um, I just. I was, I don't know what I was expecting, um, you know, and that was actually really important for me, too, to have that conversation with, with um, his attorney because, you know, he had reached out a couple times before, and I just, I didn't feel the need to ever, you know, engage in conversation with any of the, the, the killers of previous attorneys, um, and so I had no relationship with Yale, um, and he was so, like, you know, informal, like, hey, Kim, what's up? Like, wait, what? You know, it was just, and I responded, what's up, Yale? Like, thinking we were buddies, and then I quickly <laughs> thought, wait a minute, wait, I, no, I'm in charge here. You uh-huh. know, I have, to, I have to establish control, because for so long, you know, the, the killer and his team and, and, you know, everybody involved with him had dictated so much of our maneuvering and all of our decisions, because they were the dominating force, and it was important for me to establish where I stood in this conversation with Yale as well, so that I didn't get steamrolled and you know that was important too and um he just rambled and i just took very copious notes yes and when he was saying um about that he couldn't protect you i don't know if he meant so much physically or he was trying to convince you um from from what you write about in your book he was trying to convince you that it wouldn't be good for you psychologically he was trying to be your be your therapist which is kind of odd yeah but it's also very telling um you know, I didn't. I didn't feel you know that he was trying to protect me from a physical standpoint either. I didn't. I I haven't felt that, but I did think that he was trying to protect me from what I would hear, or from you know what I have again believed to be this you know sociopathic narcissistic personality. Um, who who knows what he would have been like with me? He 
he doesn't like me, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you know, he's always been, um, you know, I'm like a thorn in his side, and that was the right. whole point. But um, I, don't, I don't know. It was interesting to even have that conversation with Yale as well. Now, did you, um, did, have you heard back from him since the book has been out? No, I haven't heard anything. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> it, would be, it would be fascinating to, to hear his reaction to that. You know, actually, I don't know if I ever, I don't think I ever had the opportunity to tell you this, but I actually was in a position um, to see O.J. in jail at the L.A. County Jail. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Um, when he was first in jail, you know, right after the murders, um, I, you know, I work as a, one of the things, one of the hats I wear is as a forensic psychiatrist. And so I was in the L.A. County Jail um, examining, you know, doing a psych eval of um, a prisoner there, an inmate. And, oh. um, and you know, there are the cubicles. Um, and I was sitting in one cubicle, and it's, they're, they're pretty, you know, you can pretty much see what's going on in each, each cubicle. And uh, lo and behold, O.J., was the killer, was in the cubicle next to the inmate who I was examining. And, oh. um, and what, I, what I can tell you is that, now remember, this was early on. This was, you know, before yeah. the first trial had... Um, it might have been during, I don't remember if the first trial had started or it was in the early stages if, if it had started. And he was, the people who were visiting him were, was a team of lawyers. And um, there were some men, and I think there were like one or two men and, and two women. Mm-hmm. And I remember the women in particular because he was, even though he was sitting there in this uh, inmate wear, <laughs> um, he was trying to be his... Uh, smarmy, um, charming, <laughs> charming, yep. you know, uh, try, put, trying to put on the charm, let's put it that way, to get them under his spell. And it was really pretty uh, nauseating. So, yeah. uh, and, you know, they were, uh, and the attorneys weren't really, um, they weren't, I don't know, they were sort of, you could tell, I mean, they, you would think they were having a party. It was, mm-hmm. like, really very um, disturbing because the attorneys were, I don't know whether they were just so pleased, <laughs> pleased with themselves that they were on his dream team or they were trying to, trying to uh, curry favor with him. I mean, and these, the women, I, I have no, I don't remember, it wasn't anybody, I mean, you know, he had a whole, besides the people that were seen on television, um, you know, he had a whole, there were all these other underlings but beneath, below them, you know. So right. I couldn't even tell you who they, the women were or who the men were for that matter. It was a long time. It was 20 years ago. Right. Um, but but um, the women were nauseatingly seeming to be flattered by his attention. You know, he was able to sort of um, pull out that psychopathic, exactly, right. sociopathic, psychopathic charm. And it was really... Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's what he would have tried to do with you or well, what. Well, he did. We actually had a, a, a situation. It was during the, um, the civil case when we were doing depositions prior to the case starting. Um, I wasn't allowed in the room where depositions were taking place, so I stood in the hallway. I stood very vigilantly, vigilantly outside the door. Um, and during one of the breaks, he and his team had come through the door um, that I was standing in front of, and I was paralyzed. You know, because I tried, we tried to keep everything very separate. Um, 
And he came up and he stood in front of me and he looked me up and down and like smacked his lips together like I was a piece of meat. Uh. And I blurted out, don't look at me that way. <laughs> and then he chuckled and, and he kept walking. And I think of all the things that I have wanted to say. <laughs> that's what came out of my mouth. But that's what he evoked in me, this really disgusting kind of smarmy, you know, looking at me like, you know, like he wanted to have, it was just gross. It was yes, just disgusting. yes, yes, yes. So I, I've experienced that. Yes. Well, one of the things that I, w- that I thought was fascinating that you read about was, um, and, and it's so interesting because when this happened, I, that morning I actually talked about this in a, in a radio interview, and to, to read it in your book was very, um, what, um, validating or whatever, because I figured that this was it. Um, you talk about how, and this is such a sign of the universe, coming around and, and, you know, like karma or whatever you want to call it, but how when the book If I Did It came out and you were on Oprah, that was the day that he yeah. um, went to rob the things that are, have now put him in prison. So tell us about that. So we, um, without getting into too much of the legal, le- yeah. legal maneuverings yeah. of the book, we ended up with the rights to the book. We were ordered by the bankruptcy court to publish. This was not our choice. We were ordered to publish the book, um, and so my dad and I did so. We wrote, I wrote two chapters. We tried to, tried to make it as um, digestible as we could, um, but it was his words. We left them as, as, they, as he wrote them and intended them to be heard, um, and we published the book and went on Oprah's show to talk about it, and it was in that show that um, she made a couple of comments to me that were upsetting, um, telling me I needed to, you know, get over it. The whole country had moved on. Why can't I? Um, but it was that day that that show aired that he stormed the uh, Las Vegas hotel room demanding uh, that he get his stuff back, holding people with a gun, kidnapping all the charges that he was then later convicted of and held to 33 years in Las Vegas. But that was the day. And I, it took me a long time to really believe that it was, my father's and my pursuit of him for so long and then ultimately publishing that book that I, I, I believe kind of pushed him right over the edge and drove him to do what he did in Las Vegas. Yes, and of course it was so telling that here he wanted to get his stuff back, talking about his memorabilia or his you know, things, clothes that had belonged to him and his trophies and so on, whatever. Right. Um, but really, you know, that was symbolic of what he really meant, which was, you know, getting his book back or getting the right to tell his story back when there you right. were on Oprah, <laughs> you know, yeah. instead of him with, with uh, touting his, his book. Well, we turned, we turned it around on him, you know, I mean, he, you know, he prefaced that whole book with, you know, is a, it was just a, if, you know, if this is going to be, if this is what I would do. Well, no, no innocent person does that, you know, and so he stood to make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, upon millions of dollars for that book. And um, I don't think he was too pleased when uh, the book was, you know, stolen from him basically and, and given to us, you know, his arch nemesis. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel I, I feel pretty good that maybe we had a hand in that. But, you know, in the, in the same vein, you know, for, for many years, we, this country, gave him permission to kind of, you know, run about and do whatever he wanted. I mean, we basically told him with his acquittal that you can commit murder and get away with it, and you're above the law, and I think that we help perpetuate that holier-than-thou mentality that he had until it got himself in trouble in Las Vegas, and I feel pretty comfortable that we had a hand in that. 
Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, particularly, it was it was the universe giving you a sign, the fact that it happened on that day, and that this is the result of his being in prison. You know that I think you can take you and your father can take credit for that, and and your attorneys. <laughs> Um, can take credit for that, um, and especially since, you know, and, and we can talk more about it when we, we need to take another break, but we can talk more about it when we come back. I want you to be to tell everyone, you know, people who think that you've made millions from this just because you won the civil suit. So we'll get to that when we come back. My guest okay. is Kim Goldman. Her book is called Can't Forgive, My 20-Year Battle with O.J. Simpson. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here with Kim Goldman, who has uh, just had her latest book released. It's called Can't Forgive My 20-Year Battle with O.J. Simpson, and this is to mark the 20-year anniversary, which will occur on June 12th um, of this year. It's 20 years since 1994, when the killer, O.J., um, horrifically murdered Nicole Brown Simpson, who was his intended target, and then, unfortunately, also Ron Goldman, who um, was Kim Goldman's brother. And, you know, let's, I want to make sure we get that in, so um, we'll talk about the civil suit in a minute. But, you know, because you, wrote, you write about that, and, yes, I, I think, I don't know that a lot of people or everybody got that, like what Ron, there was all this speculation about what Ron was doing at Nicole's house that night, that they were lovers and so on. So, and you write about that. So, tell us about that. Um, as as far as I know, um, my brother was doing just as all of the the stories tell you is that he was, you know, re- returning a pair of glasses to um, Nicole. They were her mother's glasses that got left behind at the Mizzlona restaurant. My brother was the waiter that night um, when her whole family came in. Um, my my brother was, you know, dating someone at the time. Um, they were in a relationship. He had plans to go meet friends. In fact, his pager was 
back in the day when they had pagers, his pager was going off from his friends wanting to know where he was because they were supposed to meet up. So my brother, you know, I, I've, I've said this a, a million times and I believe it in my heart that I, I wish that my brother would have been more selfish that night because I think it would have spared his life. But, you know, if you, if you believe the evidence and you believe the timeline, my brother stumbled onto Nicole being assaulted and stepped in to try to help and lost his life in the process. And I, of course, wish that he would have run, but that would have not been his character. So um, he was just a, a friend trying to help. And you make the point so, so poignantly about how he was always your protector in your childhood, and he was always so caring and loving and, and um, you know, that that was part of his personality to, that it would, it would have been just a natural thing for him to run up there to return um, the glasses because that's who he was. Yeah. You know, my brother and I, you know, were raised by my dad, who is a single dad, um, and, you know, we just relied on each other. I mean, we, we were the epitome of, like, loyalty and commitment and, you know, we did whatever we could to keep each other safe and nothing to do with my dad other than we were siblings and we were just two peas in a pod, you know. And so from the earliest memories I have, my brother was always the one looking out for me. I was a little squirt, you know, every picture we're holding hands, we're touching, he's got his arm around me. And even growing up into our teen years when it gets awkward and, you know, you don't want to be around anybody except your friends, my brother always you know, hung out with me. I mean, I, I may have trailed a couple steps behind him, but he always kept me, you know, close by. And until his friends started thinking I was cute, then he wanted me to stay a little further back. <laughs> but he was always, you know, I mean, we, we just had that relationship. We really liked each other. And, um, you know, he was always making sure that I was, I was safe and taken care of. And, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for all of that. It's taught me a lot about family and loyalty. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that he, that was an important part of his his character as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we before the break, I, I did start to ask you about the civil suit and tell people about, you know, people who think that you have, whom, <laughs> that you may have, uh, because you won the civil suit, which turned out to be, well, it, it was $19.3 million, but it's grown over the years. Explain that. Right. So between our two families, the Brown family and um, our family, we were awarded $33.5 million. Um, our portion was slightly larger than the Brown family only because they weren't awarded um, punitive damage. It was just mm. compensatory damages. There's two different kinds of damages you're awarded. So our portion, which was 19.5 or whatever the exact percentage is, I don't 19.3 or whatever, 0.5, um, has grown to be more than $40 million at this point because of interest and we've been able to recover less than a percent um, since we were awarded the judgment. Um, I think that people believe that when we got that judgment handed down that we also were given a big check. Um, That's not at all how it works. Um, You're awarded a judgment and then it is um, all on you and your own legal resources to go and collect on that judgment and um, we have been very, uh, not entirely successful in that, but the point of it was never really obviously to, to line pockets, which a lot of people want to think. Um, it really has just been about keeping the pressure on and making sure that he knows that we're watching and that, you know, we wanted, wanted to make his life miserable. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, but that's, that's basically what we, what we wanted and the civil system affords you the right to do so by having a judgment that you need to collect on. So, 
Uh, well, and also to um, to get some satisfaction, some measure of honor t- for your brother, to have some reasonable jury find that he was guilty. Right, and I think that's where, you know, I get a lot of people, even, you know, 20 years later, people are very confused as to how he can be found not guilty. Well, people say innocent, which he wasn't found innocent. He was found not guilty right. in the criminal case, and then he was found you know, liable and responsible for the wrongful death of Ron and Nicole. Um, and 12 people, like you just said, you know, unanimously came up with that, with that verdict. Still a courtroom. It's still the, the justice system. It's just a different court of law that we were able to get that, that verdict and that judgment. It was incredibly important for us to have it on the record, to have it documented that he was responsible for those deaths. Um, and I, that was a huge step in, in, you know, regaining some control and power back in our lives as victims and survivors. Yes, and and you talk about, um, and I actually didn't know this, that um, when the when the verdict in the criminal trial was read, that you know, describe um, what what you saw happen from the juror, or at least one juror. <laughs> what what what? How did they react? Um, there was a you know the the. There was one particular juror that um, raised his raised his hand, his fist in solidarity um, towards the defense team, um, and that was really hard because I I didn't want to believe, you know, that there was this this divide in our country in that jury in that courtroom. I just really really believed wholeheartedly wholeheartedly that you know truth and honor prevail and that you know facts and evidence speak louder than anything else. Um, but when I saw his, his arm go up like in like a good for us kind of mentality, that was really that was really disheartening. And, you know, I then turned my attention over to the defense side and Johnny Cochran leaned over and kinda of looked at me and, and mouthed the words gotcha. Hmm. Um, and that was I was pretty much all I could take. Um, we were ordered to we had to sit and we just got up and, and left. I, I couldn't I couldn't take it anymore. I mean, that just made the whole thing... You know, it's amazing that, I mean, I I guess technically there wouldn't be a way, but, but, I mean, it it should have been a mistrial in a sense to to know that there was some one juror. I mean, jurors are supposed to be dispassionate. They are supposed to be, as you say, um, just looking at the evidence and so on. They're not supposed to be uh, persuaded by things other than... The evidence and and for a juror to raise his you know like to you know at Johnny Cochran or at the team the defense team like like I'm your boy you know I yeah. I, I I got you this or or you know I mean that's just so um, I well, I've was- never seen anything like that happen in a jury um, even if. I mean it's just so not what juries and, and the and the justice system of course is supposed to be about. Well, really, nothing about our case was entirely what it's supposed to be about. Right. I mean, honestly, you know, there were there were lots of conversations about jury nullification. There were lots of conversations about things, you know, happening inside that courtroom that weren't supposed to be yes. there. And, you know, that was really troubling because it was just like a really bad train wreck. And, you know, so many things took us, derailed us from the path that we should have been on. And I blame Nito for that. I blame, you know, in somewhat... The media, and actually the media perpetuated, but having the cameras in there, I think there was a lot of pandering to the camera. Um, in hindsight, the camera, I think, was beneficial to us because the public got to see for themselves what went on behind mm. closed doors. Mm. Usually, 
They got to see for themselves the evidence, um, and then they ultimately can decide for themselves if they thought the jury, you know, came back with the right or wrong verdict. But at the time, there was so much going on that, that had nothing to do with Ron and Nicole and had nothing to do with the mounting evidence against him. Um, and that was, that was really troubling um, to be a part of that, and I just didn't realize how much it was going to impact the outcome until it happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes, there's still the feeling like, well, this is the American justice system, and so justice will prevail, except well, for when you know, it doesn't. Well, the truth is, I was raised to believe when you walk when you walk into a courthouse or you walk down the hall of justice, that that's what happens, that you mm-hmm. get justice, that your wrongs are righted and truth prevails, and the truth is, that's not what happens there. It's not a really, it's not a, it's not a pathway to the truth. Mm-hmm. That's not really what's going on in there, and I had a really rude awakening um, you know, being in the midst of all of that. And, you know, 20 years later, with my 10-year-old son having to try to explain to him, you know, about the politics of of law enforcement and the courtroom and, you know, guilty versus not guilty. I mean, that's really confusing because, Mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't understand any more than he should. He, he, I want him to believe that you put your faith in the system and that you, you put your faith in that good prevails. But, you know, we all know... That's not always what happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what about some of the things that you um, write about that aren't related to the trial? I mean, one of the things, you certainly lay your heart bare, literally, um, in regard to your social life and and um, how difficult that was, not only because of, you know, um, that, the question of whether people whether the guys who you would meet um, know who you are or know about your history, and also yeah. because of your mother's abandonment. Yeah, there was a lot that was, that was going on in that regard. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happily divorced at, at this stage of my life. Um, my ex-husband was someone that I grew up with, so when he and I ended up back together, I felt calm because he knew me way back when he knew my brother, he knew me, you know, before my car accident. Um, so there was a sense of familiarity and I needed that at the time that he and I, you know, were together and ended up marrying and having a beautiful son. But since my divorce, um, it's been hard to meet people, not only just because of normal difficulties in dating and finding quality people, but when your life is on TV and you're associated with such tragedy, um, there are some preconceived notions that come with that and that get assigned to you, which is that I'm incredibly fragile, um, that I'm always crying, that I need to be saved, um, that if they break up with me, that they're going to be the ones that are going to send me to the loony bin. Mm. Um, There's lots of, I had the hero complex rolled up. um, So I didn't, I wasn't just dealing with the normal, you know, difficulties of dating, but it was just exacerbated by having, a somewhat public persona, um, and I just, I was trying very hard to separate myself from that, and it just wasn't always possible. Yes, yes. Well, we need to take another break. Um, this, uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, the hour is going so quickly because there, there's really so much, and we're, we're, of course, just touching on some of the highlights. My guest is Kim Goldman. Her book is Can't Forgive, My 20-Year Battle with O.J. Simpson. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I want to get right back to Kim Goldman and her book, Can't Forgive, My 20-Year Battle with O.J. Simpson, that has just come out to mark the 20-year anniversary of the horrendous murders by O.J. Simpson. Um, of her brother Ron Goldman and um, Nicole Brown Simpson. Um, I wanted to, you know, we were talking, we started talking about your relation, love relationships, romantic relationships, and how much, how uh, particularly difficult um, they are. And, you know, it's interesting because it, I've noticed that nowadays um, people in general, there is a kind of um, trend or tendency for people to sort of appreciate um, men or women, you know, romantic partners, people who they had known in their past, I think because the world in general has gotten so crazy, um, that there's a kind of security and safeness and and nostalgia for when things were simpler, when life was simpler. And um, so people from one's past um, become more attractive because there is that sense of he, you know, he, like what you're saying about your husband, your ex-husband, that he knew Ron, he knew you, you know, back then, and so on. Right. And I see that in general in people. I don't know if you've been noticing that too, but there is that that search for well, uh, for nostalgia and safety and so on. Well, you know, and that that definitely showed up in my relationship with my ex-husband. What what I missed was the ability to have longevity. You know, we were great back then, um, you know, but, and, and that's okay. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not someone that lives my life with regrets. I'm pretty much a, you know, you do the best with what you can, you know, with, with what you have and with, with what you know. And at that time, it was the best decision for me. It just didn't, it didn't mm-hmm. have longevity attached to it. But I think that, you know, we started to mention it before about feeling abandoned. Like, I, I was, my mom left, you know, when I was young. She abandoned my brother and I, and that has had some some profound impact on me um, growing up as as a, as a as a woman, you know, being raised to men, ultimately having you know romantic relationships, now being a parent, um, and I wasn't expecting, despite all of my therapy, I wasn't expecting that to kind of show up so much later in my life. But you know, and and so 
to be battling some of those demons, to be a single parent, to be dating now just, you know, for me and for my kids, have this public persona, there was a lot wrapped up in there. And when people that, you know, got too too overwhelmed with what was was going on in my life, I felt abandoned because I'm still just kin to this. And I didn't understand that sometimes the gravity of how big things were from a public standpoint could have been very um, overwhelming for somebody to just step into because I was still me in all of here. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you know, that, that has, that has produced, um, you know, other therapy sessions. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, you know, um, my first book was bad boys. Um, uh, why we love them, how to live with them and when to leave them. And I talk about 12 different types of bad boys. And from some of the descriptions, um, that you give, well, they were all bad boys in the end because yes. bad boys are heartbreakers. <laughs> but from at least a, two of the descriptions that you give of men that you dated, they they fit into my frazzled frog category. Um, another name that I give to it is the fixer-upper lover. And yeah. usually it's, um, you know, I, I mainly I write the book from the perspective of um, the relationship that the little girl has with her father that directs them to these bad boys, you know, 12 different types of bad boys, depending upon the 12 different types of relationships with their father. And, um, and well, and actually, come to think of it, well, so, and the frazzled frog is uh, typically a woman who, whose father either died when she was little or abandoned her when she was little. You know, he was not in her life. And she picks a frazzled frog because those seem like the type who are least likely to abandon her. And I Mm -hmm. think in your case, it was because of the early abandonment um, of your mother. Yeah. I really, you know, so many, you know, opportunities now. I mean, I have much more clarity having stepped away from it. But I still have that little girl in me that just wants to be loved and accepted. And, you, you know, despite how how I understand logically, you know, my emotions still sometimes get the best of me. So when I put myself in situations where I just want a relationship to work because I don't want to be that self-fulfilling prophecy of I must be damaged because my mom left. Mm-hmm. You know, when I had my car accident and my face was, you know, mutilated, people leave me must be because I'm ugly. Like, I, I really internalized so many of those situations that I, I dealt with growing up that, as a grown woman, I'm, I'm working it out, you know, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. now I have much more confidence in myself, and now I feel, like I said earlier, far more comfortable in my skin, and if someone chooses to leave my life, then it's probably better off. Um, I'm much more apt to ask people to leave my life. I don't have as much of a fear of people uh-huh. leaving anymore, um, which is huge growth. I used to let a lot of relationships stay because I just, I, I thought I needed to compromise so much in order to make relationships work and hadn't realized that I was compromising my dignity and my self-worth um, to overcompensate for all these other things that had happened, you know, previously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but it's hard when you're in the moment, you know, because attention right. feels nice and feeling desired feels nice. But, you know, I, I have too much to lose at this point and um, I'd much prefer to be alone and sane and happy and healthy than in a dysfunctional relationship. I did that for far too long. Now, um, you write about, you know, how wonderful your father um, is and how wonderful your brother was and how he still is a, uh, still guides your life each day, really, has an influence each day. Um, and your son, what a, what a magical, sweet little boy he is. Um, and I'm wondering, do, do you know, the book just came out, what, like two weeks ago? Yeah, a couple, uh, May 9th. Uh-huh. And um, have you had any 
any reaction from your mother yet? Because you, you pretty much tell it like it is, and it's yeah. it's not pretty. Um, no, I have not. Um, I had uh, one phone call from an ex-boyfriend, um, but other than that, no, I haven't had any reaction. And that, that's okay. I well, wrote I'm it sure she's going to read it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or, or She doesn't care too much about me, so... <laughs> well, or at least people in her family will read it and tell her about it, you know? Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, again... This book was this book was more of a gift to myself and more to honor you know my own growth and uh, you know my ability to kind of thrive and and to stand upright in the face of adversity and you know I we talked about this at the break but there there is this there is this like burning desire that I have to kind of redefine what a victim and a survivor is and. I don't know what the word is. I maybe need to make one up, but, you know, we, we do have the capacity to live, you know, a, a joyous life, even though we have suffered a great loss. And I, I don't know any other way to do my life other than the way that I'm doing it. So I have, I have appropriate grief. I have appropriate anger. But I've also taken the things I've learned and try to give back. And I, I, you know, I've been in the nonprofit world for a better part of 15 years in a multitude of different causes, um, I work with teenagers now. I get to counsel and, and be part of their journey and their process, and I know it works. And so I get to be a role model for my kid. You know, I mean, there's all these really beautiful things that, that come from this book. Um, so if my first mother reads it and she gets upset, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think I, I, know I've, I've, I know that I've grown from it to be a better human, so that's Well, and, and I think she need. I hope she does read it because I hope she realizes um, – you know, the pain that she inflicted. But this book is an incredible inspiration to to anybody, um, whether, you know, I was saying before, of course, if, you, if we've all lost someone, um, whether it's a brother or a parent or, you know, a grandparent or, or whoever, someone we've loved. And um, I think Kim is a wonderful role model for how to, I mean, you know, how to survive the, the pain of, of a horrendous tragedy. And, you know, it isn't, um, I mean, that's what's so important, too. We, you, you start reading the book thinking, oh, this is going to be about the horrendous tragedy of, you know, losing her brother to the killer. But, um, but in fact, when, when you read about how, how before this happened, um, that you had already been a survivor in terms of uh, surviving your, your mother's abandonment, her kidnapping, um, and then abandonment again, and, and um, your car accident that, that um, you know, disfigured you, and, and you had to survive that, and, and um, <laughs> fortunately you were able to, uh, to, to do that. And it's just, it's just an incredible, uh, an incredibly... Um, uh, raw, vulnerable, true story, and I think it's just you're just a wonderful role model for for everyone um, to read. So I can't I can't recommend this enough. Again, the book is called Can't Forgive: My Twenty Year Battle with O.J. Simpson. Of course, it's on Amazon. It's in Barnes and Noble. It's wherever books are sold. And I uh, it's it's an amazing read. We've touched on some of the highlights, but really, um, really, there's there's much more. There's you know, it's really the store, her story that is tro- told so unflinchingly. So, Kim, thank you so much for being a guest on the show, and I, I wish you all the best in, in continuing to be a role model for others. Well, thank you for giving me the chance to talk about it in more depth. I appreciate that. Okay, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.